most of what you need is on the sheets, but there'll be a couple of verses that I refer to that um, aren't on the sheets, and you might want to look at the context as well. Um, you'll need uh, a copy of your sheets, and inside uh, you've got the passage that we'll be looking at. Um, we're continuing our series in Mark chapter 5, uh, or, well, through Mark, and we're in Mark 5, um, end of Mark 4, and... Um, we're going to get going. It's quite a, a serious topic um, this morning. I'm just going to put do not disturb aeroplane mode on my phone. Um, quite a serious topic this morning. We're going to be looking at the theme of demonization. Uh, Jesus encounters a demonized man. This is actually the, uh, the longest um, encounter that Jesus has with anyone. Um, in the whole of Mark's Gospel. Um, and Mark is pretty tight with his words, so he's obviously wanting us to pay real attention here. Um, it's also the longest account of um, exercising uh, demons in the whole of Scripture. Um, and so, um, quite, quite an extraordinary passage to be turning to, and one in which we, we might think, well, yeah, that's, that's relevant for, for them then, um, or for people in very, very weird circumstances, uh, but not really relevant for us. Um, but I don't think Mark had that intention when he gave it so much space. I think he wants us to see more of Jesus' identity, uh, but also something of the extremes of what could, in less extreme ways, happen in our lives. Um, I've done a lot of listening and reading and thinking this week, I'm certainly not an expert on this subject. And so um, my prayer is that you guys pay attention and we do lots of speaking the truth in love and thinking through how this um, might apply to us in um, days, weeks, months uh, ahead or even now. Um, so to that end, let, let me pray um, that the Lord would speak if this really is his word, that he would make himself real to us. Father, thank you that you are a speaking God. Thank you that you don't leave us in the dark. Lord Jesus, thank you that this uh, account of Mark records what you actually did and said. Um, and we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be at work in our hearts so that what we read as text on a page would uh, prove to be your life-giving word for us this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Just going to grab my water. Okay. So last week we saw the account of the calming of the storm. Excuse me. Um, and we saw that Jesus deliberately after he'd finished his day of teaching and, and asked them again and again in different ways, are you really listening? Are you really listening? He then said, let's go over to the other side. And they showed that they trusted him by heading over to the other side, even though they probably knew that crossing the Sea of Galilee at that time of year, in that climate, was a very dangerous thing to do because the winds can easily pick up in the evening. And they ended up in the most fearsome storm that they'd ever been in or ever seen. And they asked Jesus the question, don't you care if we drown? He led them into the storm. They trusted him into the storm. And we saw that actually he wanted them to go in that storm so that they would see him rebuke the wind and the waves and show that he could be trusted. 
But we saw that that encounter ended with them not terrified of the wind and the waves anymore, but terrified, well, there at the top of your sheets, Mark chapter 4, verse 41. They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They suddenly realise that they are in the boat with someone who is clearly an ordinary man. He was needing to sleep. And yet at the same time, had infinite power. He didn't do what all the other godly leaders in the Bible leading up to that point did, which is to pray or ask the Lord to bring the solution. He just spoke. And the wind died down and the waves were completely calm. And so suddenly they're not terrified of the storm anymore. Well, the sea is calm. They're terrified of him. And they're asking that question. They're still trying to work out. They might be having inklings that he is the Messiah, the chosen one of the Lord. They've heard him make big, divine-sounding claims, but it's very hard for a Jew to believe that idea that a human being could be God. In fact, terrifying. And here they are in the boat with someone. But that question is left hanging. Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Let's have a look as we read through the passage as to when that question gets answered and by whom. So let's keep going. Chapter 5, verse 1. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes, Um, If you've got your Bible open, you'll see a little footnote saying some manuscripts say the Gadarenes, um, other manuscripts the Gergesenes. Um, What we're in here is a region called the Decapolis, and we'll see that referred to later, which just means the Ten Cities. And there were different names for smaller or larger towns, and sometimes the area that Jesus ended up in could have had any one of those names for it. But as they go into this region, it's called the Decapolis, which is a Latin name, because it's occupied by the Romans. This is a Roman-occupied territory. There are occupying Roman forces there. And so this is a Gentile area in Jewish territory. It's, it's, to be in a Gentile area was considered unclean by the Jews. But to be in an enemy-occupied area was even more unclean. And Either the people who we're going to discover attending pigs are Jews, in which case they're totally compromised, or they're Gentiles, in which case it's totally unclean anyway. We we start to get the idea that Jesus is entering into an unclean area. We saw the comparison last week with Jonah, who was told to go and share the gospel in unclean Assyria, as it were. Well, Jesus is going in to share the good news here. And let's just see that emphasis of unclean built. So verse 2, when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure or unclean spirit came from the tombs to meet him. I found it weird that that Mark didn't write an evil spirit. He wants to emphasise this. This is an unclean area. This is an untouchable area. So it's not just that um, he's unclean, it's that uh, sorry, it's not just that he's, he's got an evil spirit, he's, got, he, he's unclean. Tombs. Uh, for Jewish people to even touch something that had touched a dead body was considered unclean, and they couldn't then go and worship in the temple for seven days. They had to have a period of cleansing, of spiritual cleansing. But this guy came from the tombs to meet him, and then we discover, verse 3, this man lived in the tombs. 
And this strange spirit meant that no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. And that sense of anymore means there's been a progression here, that things have got worse and worse and worse in this man's life. So much so that he seems to be completely taken over by this unclean spirit, or spirits as we're going to discover. There's verse 4, For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. And apparently, even when we're exerting ourselves at our fullest sprint, uh, we only use about 30% of our muscle strength. That's what I heard this week. I don't know if that's absolutely true. Penny, you can correct me if that's right or wrong. And so there are extraordinary situations in which people totally exceed their abilities if they're under some influence. And, and sometimes you see it like at the end of a marathon. Someone is utterly exhausted and collapsing and they're almost sort of limping to the end. And then the last 200 metres, they sprint. And, and there's some sense of sort of brain override of... And, and you go to their full potential. We don't know exactly how this happened, but there are other phenomena of people under some extraordinary influence having this kind of superhuman strength. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. So this man is terrifying but also it's desperately sad, isn't it? His, his life has obviously gone from bad to worse, to worse, to worse, to worse. He's just utterly dominated by this evil force. We discover later that he's, when he's healed, he's clothed and in his right mind, so he would have been naked, which is another sense of un uncleanness and untouchableness about him. He's terrifying, but he's desperately sad. He's the ultimate untouchable cut-off person of his day. But Jesus came searching for this man. We're going to discover that Jesus pretty much only has an encounter with him and then goes back. Jesus comes in search of the most untouchable, the most disgusting. Now, we're going to think a little bit more about this idea of demonization and can we believe in it today. But I think in, in areas in which we would agree that someone becomes evil and untouchable, there'd be certain, certain areas in which our society would agree on that, even if they wouldn't attribute it to anything supernatural. Um, and I, I was hearing of something from a friend of mine who's a policeman, um, a police officer, as he often corrects me, sorry, um, uh, uh, that he had a terrifying encounter with someone who was a very well-to-do um, city worker, um, I can't remember whether he was an accountant or a lawyer, but he was something like that. Young man, working in the city. Um, if you met him, he'd be in his suit. You'd think he was very respectable. Um, he started to look at porn from a relatively young age, um, and then his appetite for porn got worse and worse and worse. And nothing would satisfy that appetite. And so he started looking for more and more dodgy things, but then he wanted to actually enact them, and so he started getting involved in physical orgies with other people, but those that then turned out to be people who wanted to look at images of children. And finally, he was caught when actually soliciting a child for this sex orgy. And this friend of mine has said just it, the thin end of the wedge of that 
exposure that our society can have leading to that kind of utter sexual deviation was, was desperately sad to see. And this man became untouchable, went to prison, he's probably going to be in prison for the rest of his life. In prison, those kind of people end up getting beaten up by their fellow prisoners, um, so they have to be put away into separate areas. But actually, one thing this friend of mine said is, is that when the man was caught, he was relieved. <laughs> he was relieved because he lost control. He was under the influence of something far more powerful than himself. And that might be today's untouchable in respectable London. It's probably more common than we think. But Jesus came searching for that man. And, and that man seemed to know that Jesus had come looking for him, didn't he? Do you see verse 6? When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. And it's, it's hard to know at this point. He's under the influence of these sort of demonic forces. Was this him? I, I, my feeling is this is this man. It's his last-ditch attempt at, at desperation. He's utterly, he knows he's desperately under the influence of these evil forces. And he sees someone coming to help him, and he runs, desperate for help. But he's one big mess, isn't he? Verse 7. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? There's the answer to the disciples' question, isn't it? Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Somehow these demonic forces know exactly who Jesus is. And, and, and it seems with all these demonic encounters that, some, that the, the devil and his demons, his, his fallen angels, are orthodox in their, <laughs> in their religion. You'd think they would... They would want to lie or undermine in that situation. But somehow they know what's happening. And, and then the next bit that he says, verse 7, he says, in God's name, don't torture me. The word um, in, in the ESV, you'll see, it's, I adjure you. I, he's saying, I swear to God, swear to God that you won't torture me. And uh, this weird sort of demonic force is appealing to the ultimate higher power, which, it, which is odd, isn't it? But it gives us some strange sense that in this world, it, it's not that there's God who's good, who's the sort of the yin, and then there's the devil who's the yang, and there's a sort of battle between cosmic forces. <laughs> As I've heard people describe, and John was, uh, who, who were you quoting the other day? He said, this is God's devil. Uh, Luther. Luther, Martin Luther, yeah, said, um, Satan is, is is God's devil. That actually Satan knows that if he's going to get anything, he's got to appeal to our higher power. And in Matthew chapter 8, we get a little bit more detail in some areas and less in others. Um, it seems there's a second demonized man that would have been with them, but Mark is just focusing on the one. And that second demonized man said, have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Very strange concept that there's some agreement that... Satan and his fallen angels are able to live in this world for an appointed time. And they seem to know there's some kind of contract. Jesus says later on when he's telling the parable of the sheep and the goats, he says to those who end up turning away from him and turning away from God and all that is good, he, he says they're cast into the place that has been appointed for the devil and his angels. There's an appointed time at which 
these demonic forces will not be able to exist in God's world anymore. Strange things going on here, more than we can get our heads around. And why did he have this conversation, verse 8? Well, for Jesus said, had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Okay, so Jesus' intention was to go there and to heal the guy. And I think the reason that Mark tells us just after, rather than saying Jesus said to him, come out of this man, and then the conversation happened, is because the first bit of speech that answers the previous bit of speech, which is, who is this, even the wind and the waves obey him, is verse 7. Jesus, son of the most high God. So the devil recognises an authority far more powerful than this extraordinarily powerful demonic force. And it's a good and clean power. And is the evil fears Jesus. Verse 9, then Jesus asked him, what is your name? So Jesus looks at the man and he... He's trying to draw out his identity, but here we see that this man's identity is so, so confused with his demonic possession. He says this, my name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. Now that word Legion is a, um, a category of the Roman army. And, um, uh, and it would have been at the very least 3,000 in a legion. Um, up to, in later times, sort of nearly 10,000, probably at this time people estimate that a legion would have been about 6,000 soldiers. And so when he says, we are legion for we are many, we realise this isn't just one demon, whatever that means, but this is thousands. And this man's identity is just so tied up with this demonic oppression, you see that mixture in verse 10. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. This, this strange, messed up force. Then verse 11. A large herd of figs, uh, figs? A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Um, now, I, I both read some commentaries on this and listened to lots of people who'd read lots and lots of commentaries on them. One person said they'd read 25 commentaries on this, and no one really knows what this pig thing is about. Um, what everyone agrees on is that there was no precedent for this. It, what, one of the things those who try and sort of say, this isn't historical literature, this, wasn't ac this didn't actually happen, this developed over time, they're stealing bits from this idea and this idea and this myth and that myth and so on. And there's just nothing about demons going into pigs. Which means that even liberal scholars agree, even those who are kind of willing to say this is part legend. So th this must have actually happened. <laughs> because why would Mark make it up? It's just too odd. It's just too weird. There's almost no way to imagine how he could have made it up. You know, it's that sort of uh, stranger than fiction. But at the same time, I think it would be re reasonable <laughs> And, and in our today's society, we should assume that most people in London today would think that a lot of this is legend and made up, and this idea of demons, oh, 
I mean, isn't that just the God of the gaps thing? You heard that theory? It, in the past, when they were a bit more naive, they hadn't done all the scientific investigation that we've done, um, they would fill the unexplained with either God or the devil. And, and this is inexplicable, and so, well, let's explain it away with, with demons. But we're more sophisticated these days, aren't we? We know that there's mental illness and, and things like epilepsy and all kinds of different things that um, doctors who are specialising in psychology and so on can, can help diagnose. And, uh, and we're just much more sophisticated than they were then. The problem is that not only can we not dismiss this as made up because it just would be too weird for Mark to make it up, and so it just seems historically that happened, the other problem is that the Bible is actually far more nuanced than people assume, and actually much more nuanced than most secular scientists are today. Just have a look at Matthew chapter 4. I was listening to Tim Keller on this, and he, he pointed out, um, I've put, I put the verse on your sheets there, Matthew chapter 4, verse 24. He pointed this out, and I found it very helpful. In Matthew 4, um, he's describing Jesus' early ministry, and he says, news about Jesus spread all over Syria, and people brought to Jesus all who were ill with various diseases. Those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, we're going to see in a moment, that's not a correct translation, it should be demonized. So, those suffering severe pain, the demonized, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. What you see here is that there's a lot of nuance, isn't there, in the things that people are suffering from. A and the two particularly nuanced things are the, the demon-possessed or the demonized and those having seizures. The word in Greek um, for those having seizures is where we get our English word lunatic, which has then become an insult. But actually, in the Greek, that word for lunatic would describe anyone who had any kind of insanity or irrational behavior and seizures that wasn't attributed to demonic forces. And so they had quite a lot of nuance at the time. They could see the difference between evil activity and genuine mental illness of all kinds. And actually, the church throughout the ages, Tim Keller in the same comment pointed out that um, in our days before modern medicine, so someone called uh, Richard Baxter in the 17th century who was a famous uh, pastor here in London, um, he gave a sermon on depression, or melancholy, as they called it. And he was talking about all the different ways that scripture and wisdom help us to minister to one another in the face of extreme depression. And he, he said there are all kinds of um, causes of that. And it may be one of, of many. And he cited psychological causes. Uh, sorry, physiological causes was the first one he cited. And, and that is, you know, just things that are going wrong with your body. Maybe you need better nutrition. Maybe you need fresh air, maybe you need medicine, or just some rest. And then he cited moral causes, the idea of crippling guilt and shame. And then what's needed is, is loving confession and forgiveness and grace. He then talks about mental or psychological issues, when you're sort of overly emotionally weary or cast down. And through that you need love and support and, and counselling and community. And then he also talked about evil or demonic attack. And he said, you need prayer and the word of God. And, and he gives all these ways of ministering to someone who's going through depression. Whereas 
most worldviews today tend to be much less nuanced than the Bible. Some people are very materialistic and they're just like, well, take the right pill. Others are more psychological and it's about talk and acceptance and counselling and so on. Others are more moralistic, obey and do the right thing and things will go well for you. And others are more superstitious. There are demons everywhere and we've got to cast out demons whenever there's a problem. But actually what we see in scripture is those different elements are interlocking. There's no particular template. And so you can't dismiss the Bible as, oh yeah, that's God of the gaps or demon of the gaps or whatever. No, it's far more nuanced and multidimensional, much less reductionistic than we tend to be. Scripture never reduces our problems to a single problem. And we need to broaden our minds in the light of Scripture. Well, let's get back into the text. Verse 14. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who'd been possessed by the legion of demons, the man who had been demonized by the legion, sitting there dressed and in his right mind. I mean, this is total and utter transformation, isn't it? Complete healing dressed and in his right mind. Uh, we were looking at this earlier this week in our um, gospel community, and I think Jim said it's like he's born again. Just a whole new person, restored. Sitting there talking to Jesus, in friendship with Jesus. You'd think that Jesus would suddenly become the town hero. You'd think they'd all be celebrating and delighted. But verse 15 continues, and they were afraid. Verse 16, those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. And then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. I mean, this makes the account of the pigs even more weird. But I suppose if we're second-guessing what might have been going on, um, for us, when we see a herd of pigs or cattle or sheep in a field, we think, oh, lovely agriculture. Uh, for them, they'd see cash. Um, money was used, yes, but it wasn't the main way of paying for things. And so the way you banked was you stored up your wealth in your different area of business. And for this region, that would have been pigs. 2,000 pigs was a lot of pigs. Um, apparently today, um, a fully grown pig will sell for somewhere between 300 and 500 pounds. 2,000 pigs, well, that's somewhere between 600,000 and a million and a half. Apparently, a pig can go from being born to being ready to slaughter. It grows incredibly fast, five and a half months. So all of those pigs within five and a half months would reach that serious cash potential. They'd be producing more pigs, wouldn't they? Because pigs have babies, lots of piglets. That was a lot of cash. And Jesus, Jesus has just destroyed their local economy. But although Jesus hasn't destroyed their local economy, has he? The, the demons have destroyed their local economy. And Jesus just sold, showed them that he can heal their biggest problem. But they're not interested in that. And they tell Jesus to leave. They don't want him there. Now, we don't know exactly what happened there, but if, if a legion is 
around 6,000 soldiers, and 2,000 went into the pigs. What happened to them after they went into the pigs? What, what happened to that area? Where did the demons end up? Well, I meant to put it on your sheets, but if, you, if you've got your Bible in front of you, you could go back to Mark chapter 4, verse 15, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago in the parable of the sower. And as the seed is sown, as the word of God is sown, as, as Jesus goes out and sows the word, the first place that it lands, the seed, is on the path. And the birds of the air come and eat it up. And when Jesus explains that, he says, that's those who, as soon as they hear the word, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. These are people who are business people, sensible people. They've kept that nasty piece of work away in those horrible tombs. And they think they've made a sensible, valid choice in asking Jesus to leave. Maybe. Maybe it wasn't entirely their own doing. Maybe they aren't quite as in control as their faculties as they are. Maybe they have started to head down that very rational path of demonization. And actually, when we think of what, what does it mean to be demonized, well, it means to follow the lie of Satan. And, and the lie of Satan is introduced to us on page three of the Bible, where, where Satan takes the form of a snake. And, and we think snake ugly, horrible, but actually some of the language we get in the areas of scripture where it talks about Satan is that he was a beautiful heavenly being, like the, like the cherubim or the seraphim, who would have been in a sort of dragon snake-like form, but in beautiful elegance and glory. And then he comes down and he enters the garden and the temptation that he makes to, to Eve and to Adam is if you take from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if, if you decide for yourself what is right and wrong, then you will be like God, knowing or deciding good and evil. Satan is inviting people into just a simple invitation of you could be like God, you can be in control of your life. Rather than being in loving submission to God and enjoying the good gifts he's given you, what about you go one level higher and you become like God and you make your decisions for yourself and you run your life your way and no one's going to tell you what to do. You can make your own path. Just believe me, just take and eat. The devil's a very shrewd businessman, inviting people in to the journey that he is on, which is to set himself up against God. He doesn't want to allow God to be the source of life, he wants to become the source of life himself, but of course he has no life in himself, and so he saps life and destroys life. But every single human being who's ever lived has believed that lie, you can be like God, you can run your life your way. And Jesus just rescued one man who was totally, had seen that by trying to gain control, actually that had progressively less, left, left, led him to losing control. But then the whole region decided to go with Satan's pact rather than with the freedom that Jesus comes to offer. Let's keep going back into the passage, verse 18. As Jesus was getting in the boat, the man who had been demonized begged to go with him. 
Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how much, how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis, in that region, how much Jesus had done for him. And the people were amazed. There's so much here. One of the most extraordinary things is, is that the most untouchable human being that Jesus has encountered so far becomes the first missionary to the nations. Everyone else so far that Jesus has healed, he said, not yet, don't go and tell anyone yet, it's not ready. But Jesus says to this man, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell and interestingly, he's more successful than Jesus, isn't he? <laughs> because all the people were amazed. Jesus equips this untouchable man to become the beginning of the good news in a Gentile region, to prepare the way for the gospel to go out in full. He had minimal training. At, at most, you know, a couple of hours maybe with Jesus. But what he could say is what Jesus told him to say. See how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And surely if, if, if we're to go and tell what the Lord has done for us, that, that's all we need to share. We don't need to be brilliantly equipped with all the right apologetics answers and, and, and how we answer people's intellectual questions. We don't know, need to know our Bible inside out. This man certainly didn't. But we can say how much the Lord has done for us and how he has had mercy on us. And that's the first thing we need. That's the first thing anyone needs, is mercy. When we believe Satan's lie that we can run our lives our way, we need mercy. Which will bring healing. And this man goes out and, and he becomes that good soil, doesn't he? That sows what was sown in him. 30, 60, 100 times what was sown. He sp spreads the word about Jesus. I heard the illustration of a, a doctor who went to part of the world where um, there was a really serious um, uh, parasite that was blinding people. Many, many people were blinded. And actually all they needed to take was a certain antibiotic or pill, I, I can't remember what it was, um, and, and they could be healed of this. And whole villages were going, going blind and he, the first man he comes to, he finds his blind and he treats him and sure enough the man is, is healed and he just, he just can't believe it, his eyes are open. And um, he says, what can I do to repay you? What can I do to repay you? I didn't come here to get paid, but there's one thing you could do. Go and tell everyone what happened to you and tell them who did it for you. Suddenly the man had a lot of business <laughs> um, and he wasn't charging money, but it, the point was the way that the word spreads is not, it's not by us having clever arguments. It wasn't by that guy who was healed from blindness, being able to heal others. He just said what had happened to him and he told others who had done it for him. And all you need to do is, is say what's happened to you. Do you realise what Jesus has done for you? Do you realise how good he is? And just say who it was who did it for you. And those who want to be healed will come and be healed. Well, I want us to think in our last sort of five or ten minutes, about this theme of demonized. Because it's so unhelpful that our, 
almost every commentator agrees that it's really unhelpful that it's called demon possessed because the, the, the demons aren't possessing these people and not sort of they haven't taken control of them and if we think of it like that we'll assume that oh well that's just for some really weird people in certain areas where perhaps they've been fiddling with the occult and 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 that would never happen to me and there are extreme examples of demonization but it is a range it's a range and actually the range just starts with normal life in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 Paul says this as for you you were dead in your transgressions and, and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient he's talking about the devil every single person who is not trusting in Christ is under the influence of what Jesus calls the prince of this world or Paul calls the ruler of the kingdom of the air um, Satan has power over everyone who's not trusting in Christ they are demonized and if we think we can argue them into the kingdom we're mad Paul describes them as dead in their transgression and sin they need to be reborn or Ephesians chapter 6 famous verse that we we know uh, Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 says for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms Paul says and then he says put on the full armor of God trust the Lord for his resources because you're always going to be facing a spiritual battle you know all the struggles we face are under the influence of the devil when when Jesus comes and brings in the new creation and all evil is wiped out we won't have to worry about how much we ventilate because of COVID <laughs> and all the battles and the tensions that go on with that we won't have to worry about the sickness and the aging and and the death our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against rulers against authorities against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms you see that range there's all kinds of different forms of demonization of these sort of weird heavenly beings that have followed Satan's lie and actually the heavenly realms is described in scripture where things are really real whereas this earth is, is just where things are passing away and we know we're passing away don't we we know we ultimately turn to dust and actually the heavenly realms are where things are really real and there's a battle going on and it might sound weird and freaky but actually it does make sense of this world and then there are things that Satan will exploit that we all get involved in and, and we need to think about and constantly find repentance and confession and, and, and receive the gospel of God's grace so for example I've, I've put on your sheets Ephesians chapter 4 these are things that Satan will exploit the first is sort of anger and unforgiveness let's have a look at Ephesians 4 therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor for we are all members of one body in your anger do not sin do not let the Sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold that word for foothold is, is a place or a part of you don't let the devil nestle in you through your anger and your unwillingness to forgive don't go to bed without thinking about those you are angry and frustrated with and praying for them because otherwise you'll be demonized I think if I ask you, I'm not going to embarrass you, but I think if, if I ask you who here has been demonized, you'll all now put your hand up, won't you? Because we've all gone to bed angry and struggling to forgive someone.
See, we don't need to sort of sensationalize it to actually realize that demonization is, is very common, even among believers. Or um, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I put there on your sheets. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. So Paul's talking about an example of a guy who actually, he told them to really point out his sin and to, and to, to help him to come to repentance and trust in Christ. And it seems he did. And so Paul says to them, anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. When unforgiveness reigns in a church family, Satan is winning. He's outwitting his people. Demonization is beginning. Demonization has happened across church history. In, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says, the Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such things come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. And you think, oh gosh, what things are they going to be teaching these horrible, evil people? They forbid people to marry. They order them to abstain from certain foods, which as God has created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. I grew up thinking that you go to church and you become a really serious Christian and all fun is removed. That is the demonization of the church, isn't it? If we deny the good gifts of God and we fail to take pleasure in the wonderful things he has given us, in this amazing world with so many good gifts, that's demonization. So many people think Christians deliberately make themselves miserable. Well, if we, we are doing that, we're demonized. We should be encouraging each other to rejoice in the good gifts of God. So much so, Paul pushes it so far. In, in 1 Corinthians 7, he says to married couples who are saying, maybe I should be virtuous by, by, by abstaining from sex, and I should act more like single people who can be more spiritual. And Paul says, no, don't deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you might devote yourself to prayer. So the only reason for married couples not to be having regular sex is if they're really committing that time to praying. But then he says, then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So God thinks sex is such a good thing in marriage that we should work at making sure it happens and don't let Satan get in there and stop married couples having sex. So you know, there are many of us if you're, if you're not married, you'll think, surely if you're married, you'll be at it all the time. And then you get married and you discover there are all kinds of reasons that mean you end up not having sex for a long period of time. And we need to not give Satan that foothold. And maybe come back and pray together so that we would have more sex and more intimacy and enjoy the good gifts that God has given us. So I think there is a lot of healing from demonization that we need to be thinking about as a church as on an ongoing basis, not in a weird, wacky way, but in an understanding that we often give Satan a foothold. And we need to come back to Jesus and realize how much he's done for us, how kind he has been, how he goes on having mercy. The church is a place that is full of broken people and people who aren't very nice because we need forgiveness and healing, don't we? Everyone expects churches should be these lovely, wonderful people all the time. We're commanded to be that and love each other and consider each other more highly. But we should expect that actually we'll be struggling with all kinds of things. And that if we're coming to Jesus for healing, it's because we need 
him to free us from the oppressive power of sin, the flesh, and Satan. But as we close, and as we um, head into a time of speaking into each other's lives and singing of uh, his wonderful grace, I just want us to look back at verse 19 of Mark 5. Go home to your own people, Jesus said, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to teach in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Lord. That man gets it. How much has the Lord done for you? He tells how much Jesus has done for him. And Jesus is the Lord who offers healing and forgiveness, mercy, grace. And each of us can speak of how we know that our hearts in and of ourselves are rotten. That we can so easily fall into those areas of anger and resentment and unforgiveness and selfishness and so on. But Jesus has given us his grace. In a moment I'm going to pray and then hand over to Ed and Donnie. But um, if you want to think about this a little bit further um, and the idea of spiritual warfare and so on, um, John and Connor pointed me to very helpful resources by someone who I've met actually and um, uh, sat at an FIEC conference um, under his teaching. He's called Dave Patty and he's... um, uh, uh, an American missionary, but to the Czech Republic, so he's, he's basically um, bilingual now, he lives in, in the Czech Republic. Um, and he's done a whole load of talks that you can search online on the theme of spiritual warfare. So you just search Dave Patty, P-A-T-T-Y, and um, you'll see talks that he's done at the FIC conference or at the European Leadership Forum or um, uh, other things. Um, Dave Patty, Spiritual Warfare. And um, that'll help you to think and pray into this more. Um, for now, I'm going to pray and then over to Ed and Donnie. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you sought out this man, the untouchable man. And actually, when we realise what leads to that kind of extreme demonization, we can see that we often get onto that thin end of the wedge. And the same thought pattern that he thought would bring him satisfaction. (coughs) We believe that lie of Satan, that we could be like God, we could decide for ourselves, we try and live our lives our way. Lord, we pray that we would see where that leads and that we'd come back to you day in, day out for your grace. And we pray that as we reflect on the wonder of the gospel now, through song and through words of encouragement, that you would bring healing now. We pray for those perhaps who are particularly struggling with issues, that we would be able to pray for one another. As James says, confess your sins to one another and pray together that you may be healed. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the great healer, the great shepherd of the sheep, the great forgiver, the great pastor. We want to know you more deeply and we praise you for your kindness to us. In your name, amen.